Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 59, The Purge of the Girondins, Part 1. In the last episode, we witnessed the faction menace. As the forces of counter-revolution plotted their return, the situation in the convention was untenable. If the Republic was to survive the year, something had to be done. Faced with the prospect of renewed foreign invasion, faced with the growing success of the rebels in the Vendee, faced with the immediate threat of hunger and destitution, the people of Paris once more intervened. The purge of the Girondins was at hand. To say that I'm excited to bring you the next half a dozen episodes is an understatement. Of course, In order to explore the purge of the Girondins and the Federalist revolts that will consume France in widespread civil war, I need your help. I'm struggling to make grey history sustainable, and the only way that I can continue to bring you the show that you've come to enjoy so much is with your support. This is detailed history. It's thorough history. It's history that's meticulously researched, and it's the type of history that I know you appreciate because there's no way you've gotten to episode 59 otherwise. But the fact of the matter is that there's only a small amount of people in the world who are actually interested in history that's full of ambiguity and nuance. History that doesn't skim over the details, but instead dives headfirst into them. And as a small independent podcast, I can't stress enough that this means I really, really need your help to keep great history on the air. With an ad-free feed, tons of bonus content, and a new Discord community that is absolutely popping off, there's tons of great perks that come alongside supporting the main show. But perhaps most importantly, without your support, I'm not sure how much longer Grey History can keep going. So please support the show by joining the Grey History community today, and just follow the links in the show notes or on the website. Furthermore. If you can find just one opportunity between now and the next episode to recommend the show to friends, family, or your social media pals, that would be amazing. Speaking of amazing, it's with great pleasure that I get to introduce the newest members of the Grey History community. A warm welcome to the newest virtuous citizens, Mops, Evelyn, Connor, Al, Larry, Timothy, David, Kerry, and Uli. Another warm welcome to the newest true revolutionaries, Sasha, Drew, Angel, and Exterminus. Also, a special thank you to John W., who increased their pledge and is now a true revolutionary. Speaking of increased pledges, a big thank you to Scott S., who has become a champion of the people, as well as a warm welcome to Eyal, who is also joining the champion of the people. Of course, All revolutions need their champions. And so, a special thank you to Cindy, George, Tim, Mark, 
William, Laura, Daniel, Monica, Joel, Susan, Adam, Tom, and now Scott and Eyal. Finally, we have the extraordinarily generous Heroes of the Revolution to thank, who are now joined by Kevin and Noel. Welcome to the Pantheon of French Heroes, and you're in fine company, joining the amazing Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, and Orga. Before we get into it, one final thank you to those people who have been leaving written reviews, sharing the show on social media, writing in words of encouragement, and just helping grey history in some other way. As a reminder, I really need your support to continue to create grey history. So between now and the next episode, if you can find just one opportunity to share the show with friends or family, that would be amazing. Anyway, that's enough from me, so let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History, Episode 59, The Purge of the Girondins, Part 1. By the end of April 1793, the faction menace reigned supreme. With deputies no longer enjoying parliamentary immunity, the gloves were off, and the stakes were raised. Within the first week of April, two representatives, including the former Duc d'Orléans, had been arrested, while days later, Marat, one of the most iconic Jacobin deputies, had been impeached. Although acquitted shortly thereafter, his conviction would likely have led to his demise. As I said, the stakes had been raised. With political defeat now a death sentence, both sides threw caution to the wind. Collaboration, compromise, compassion, these were luxuries for quieter times. As May dawned in 1793, a new stage in this years-long struggle had commenced. The struggle for the convention was over. The struggle for survival had begun. On one side stood the mountain. In recent times, the political initiative had often laid with the mountain. The standard bearers of the city's radical clubs and sections, it was generally the Jacobins who benefited from popular action. Most famously, this included the overthrow of the monarchy, a coup organised and implemented by leading Jacobins and their allies. Yet, the month of April 1793 had seen a surprising turn of events. The Jacobins had been on the back foot. Despite the political opportunities presented with de Maurier's defection, the treason of the Girondin-aligned general had not been fully capitalised upon. Instead, Jacobin deputies had been arrested in the wake of the failed plot, and Girondin speeches had neutralised much of the Jacobin attacks in the days prior. Danton, Marat and Robespierre 
all found themselves on the defensive as the Girondin counterattack accused Jacobin leaders of everything from royalist conspiracy to undermining the authority of the convention. Assailed from the right, the Jacobins were also exposed on the left. In the early months of 1793, regular citizens had increasingly booed and hissed at members of the mountain for failing to defend the interests of the common people. The emerging enraged ones threatened to supplant the Jacobins as the true voice of the radical sans-culottes of Paris. But the last weeks of April provided an opportunity to regroup. Marat triumphed before the Revolutionary Tribunal, and Danton publicly renounced any compromise with the Girondins. With Robespierre's draft declaration of the rights of man, the mountain was able to perform and justify its realignment to the policy priorities of the Parisian sans-culottes. This not only included an endorsement of drastic economic measures, but forceful political ones as well. With its left flank increasingly secure from the enraged movement, the Jacobins had stabilised and solidified their support in the capital. Support which had been tenuous just months prior. Thus, by the end of April, the mountain was ready for the final showdown. Having adopted much of the demands of the Parisian sans-culottes, the Jacobin Club threw itself at one simple task. The purge of the Girondins. To varying degrees, the most prominent Jacobins had already been supporting this initiative. Marat had been denouncing the Girondins for years, and recently a considerable number of Montagnards had concurred. The Parisian mayor Pache had demanded in mid-April the expulsion of 22 leading Girondins, while Robespierre's younger brother, Augustin Robespierre, had likewise implored the sections of Paris to pressure the convention to act. Maximilien Robespierre had been vocally calling for the removal of these most treasonous and self-interested deputies, but critically, he now offered legal justification for doing so. In his draft Declaration of the Rights of Man, he had not only reaffirmed the right to recall wayward deputies, but also the sacred right of insurrection. The groundwork was being laid for the removal of the Girondins, one way or another. But the Girondins were not taking this lying down. Instead, they came out swinging, wildly. Initially, their attacks were centred on their colleagues in the convention. In the last episode, we witnessed them pursue and then secure the arrest of the Duc d'Orléans, the king's own cousin. This was no small win. Remember, for several months, the Girondins had been accusing the Jacobins of seeking to enthrone the Duke as their puppet king. Well, that puppet was now a prisoner. Less of a win was, of course, Marat's impeachment. Far from a date with the guillotine, Marat's acquittal before the Revolutionary Tribunal was nothing short of a major blunder by his opponents. 
As historian Gary Cates notes, the prompt exoneration made the Girondins look like political opportunists who were out of touch with the popular will, as expressed by the jury. Thus, Marat's trial was no small stumble, but the setback was not irrecoverable. So, as the mountain realigned itself to its supporters in the capital, the Girondins were doing much the same. This not only included what support they could still muster in Paris, but perhaps more importantly, in the provinces. If we start with the capital, the individual sections of Paris had become ground zero for the factional struggles of the convention. Hoping to find a means of neutralising the strength of the Jacobin Sanculot alliance, the Girondins attempted to mobilise their own base of supporters. With the Jacobins and the radical left increasingly attacking the elites, the rich and the new aristocracy, to use their own words, the Girondins hoped to rally those which we would consider to be in the middle classes. Robespierre's push to subordinate and redefine property rights provided an opening, as did the incessant calls for increased taxes on the wealthy, price controls, and the forced seizure and sale of goods. The Girondins sought to exploit this opportunity. For example, at the end of April, the former Parisian mayor, Pétion, urged his fellow citizens to fight back against the masses of Paris. In a published letter to Parisians, he claimed, Your properties are being threatened, and you are closing your eyes to the danger. Conflict is being stirred between the haves and the have-nots, and you are doing nothing to forestall this conflict. Parisians, snap out of your lethargy, and chase these venomous creatures back to their layers. In some cases, the Parisians did snap. As the Girondins went on the offensive, they did have some success. Throughout May, there were positive signs for the Girondins, reconfirming their belief that a moderate, silent majority did in fact exist in Paris. Historian Timothy Tackett notes that in the wealthier sections of Western Paris, the Girondin efforts to rally support appeared successful. In some sections of the city, more moderate citizens were even able to move votes to expel their current office holders, replacing them with more moderate members. Yet, these successes were limited, and they proved to be the exception rather than the rule. Such manoeuvrings weren't possible everywhere, with many of the most radical sections remaining staunch Jacobin strongholds. Furthermore, even where they were successful, the Jacobins could punch back, hence why the sections became just another front for factional feuds. In the section of Bouconcelli, for example, Girondin sympathisers packed the section's assembly and succeeded in early May in replacing the section's officials. That night, radical militants from both that section and elsewhere assaulted the Girondin sympathisers and even managed to arrest some of them. Those 
that weren't detained promptly went into hiding, reversing their earlier gains. But while the Girondins attempted to rally support in Paris, it was in the departments which their voice was truly heard. Unlike the Jacobins, whose leading figures were almost all Parisian deputies, the Girondins had always been prominent and proud champions of regional centres. Many had been elected to represent the coastal cities in the south, and for these communities, the updates from Paris had caused alarm and dismay. By now, the Girondins were working overtime to rally support back home. They spoke of anarchy in the capital, of bloodthirsty mobs, of Jacobin plots for tyranny and oppression. Playing into long-held regional tensions and distrust of the capital, the Girondins made it clear to their constituents that Paris had become the scene of the most vile atrocities and sinister conspiracies. Bernoulli, for example, told his constituents in Bordeaux that there was not a moment to lose. According to Vernieu, civil war threatened to engulf France, and the people of Bordeaux must act to remedy the disorders in Paris. This sentiment was shared by Gaudet, who depicted Paris as a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Ratcheting up the rhetoric, the Girondin deputy boldly predicted that the departments were preparing to send into oblivion the traitors and anarchists of the capital. Amazingly, Gaudet even proclaimed that the Jacobins of Paris were to be more feared than the emigrant armies or the rebels of the Vendée. An exaggeration? Undoubtedly. But one that was most probably believed by his constituents, nonetheless. But perhaps the accusations and denunciations of the Girondins are best summarised by their most iconic member, Brousseau. Speaking to the whole nation, Brousseau was clearly positioning himself for the conflict's crescendo. In mid-May, the prominent deputy accused the Jacobins of pretty much every sin possible. This included schemes to murder the Girondins, make themselves dictators of the nation, install the Duc d'Orléans as their puppet king, and institute mandatory slow walking. Okay, maybe not the last one, perhaps that's just my ideal of a nightmarish society, but I think you get the point. Brousseau was emphatic that the Jacobins were not just a danger to the Republic, but the danger, one that sat above all else. When asked to be conciliatory to his fellow Frenchmen, he replied, never. Instead, he asked simply, What kind of truce would be possible between proud Republicans devoted to liberty and treasonous royalists resolved on tyranny? Between virtue and crime, there can be only implacable war, eternal war. As historian Timothy Tackett notes, Brousseau left no doubt that their goal was to crush and eliminate the mountain. This call to arms 
was by no means rhetorical. Despite impeaching Marat for doing much the same just a few weeks prior, the Girondins were clearly galvanising support to rid the capital of their political opponents. The power struggles of Paris were spilling out into the departments. Indeed, the tensions that we have been witnessing in Paris existed in many of the large urban centres across the country, where Girondin and Jacobin sympathisers battled for control of municipal governments and local sections. Throughout the month of May, conflict in the departments became increasingly apparent. In some communities, such as Bordeaux and Nantes, the tensions were visible, but perhaps muted by their proximity to the Vendée, which of course was in open counter-revolutionary insurrection. Paris was considered a problem, but so was the much closer royalist and Catholic army prancing around in the name of King Louis Seventeenth. Other locations didn't have the same concerns of renegade priests knocking on their doors, and in these communities, the intra-revolutionary violence could be quite open. In Lyon, for example, a coalition of moderate forces overthrew the Jacobin mayor and the municipal government in late May. Likewise, in the last weeks of May, two eastern departments near Lyon made efforts to elect new representatives which would convene an alternative convention, one which sat far away from the corrupting influence of Paris. Thus, the fault lines in the convention were not just cutting across the capital, but also across the nation. After the onslaught of so many crises in 1793, the possibility of another seemed to loom larger than ever. France was on the precipice of nationwide civil war. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Now, before we move on and examine the dramatic events where all of this is leading to, I want to discuss some historiography. There is no shortage of historians who take wildly different views, not only on these actions, but the decisions of both sides for the first half of 1793. Before we discuss the purge of the Girondins, I do think it's necessary to discuss some of these views, as it outlines why some historians are sympathetic to upcoming events 
while others consider them a travesty. So let's start with those who absolutely come out swinging against the Girondins. If you ever want to hear a critical opinion of the Girondins, it's usually as simple as opening up the work of a Marxist historian. As a general rule, Marxist historians tend to find their heroes amongst the Jacobins and sometimes the enraged, and so tearing strips of their sworn factional enemies is, well, both expected and, I suspect, a tad enjoyable. In this sense, Historian Albert Sabul does not disappoint. A French historian, Sabul was writing in the mid 20th century. So keep in mind that Sabul's lived experience is one of global communism still being on the rise. As such, his methodology of viewing events primarily through the prism of class conflict seemed entirely logical from his perspective and many historians still adopt Marxist techniques and emphasis. For Sabul, and for those like him, the events of 1793 were textbook examples of class struggles. These struggles explain why the Girondins, as defenders of the middle classes, were reluctant to embrace economic controls or place limitations on property rights. Furthermore, As their support came from those with property, it explains their more moderate policies and why they were never able to embrace the policies favoured by the Sankulots. Now, in holding to these positions, Sabul does not give the Girondins a free pass for sticking to their ideological beliefs. Instead, he absolutely savages them. Sabul lampoons the Girondins for opposing the very measures necessary to save the nation and decries their consistent pursuit of policies which prioritised the interests of the bourgeoisie. Now, this is a rather lengthy quote, but I do think it helps to explore a traditional Marxist interpretation of these events, one which emphasises class conflict and one which stresses the importance of economic issues and the role of property in the broader development of events. Historian Albert Sabul writes, The party that stood for legality and government within the terms of the law was appalled by the revolutionary initiatives taken by the Paris Commune, a body largely composed of Montagnards and militants from the sections. The Girondins were the representatives of the propertied middle classes, the commercial and industrial bourgeoisie, whose interest it was to defend property rights and economic liberty against the restrictions demanded by the Sankulots. In political matters, the Gironde remained hostile to all exceptional measures made necessary by the demands of public safety, although they had unleashed the war in the first instance. They were singularly reluctant to adopt the means necessary to win it. Against the demand for greater concentration of power and the rigid subordination of all authorities to central control, they called instead for the support of the local authorities, among whose membership the moderate men of the middle classes 
held a dominant position. In economic matters, the Girondins were closely tied to the commercial bourgeoisie and distrustful of the ambitions of the people. They were passionately attached to the idea of economic freedom, freedom to undertake trading enterprises and to make uncontrolled profits. And they showed their hostility to economic regulation, price controls, requisitions, and the forced use of assignats, all measures which were, by way of contrast, strongly advocated by the Sankulots. Feeling deeply the value of social hierarchies and intent on protecting and accentuating them, holding property rights to be among the natural and inalienable rights of the people, and quite openly espousing the interests of the property-owning middle classes, the Girondins instinctively hesitated to allow the people to share in political power, for they believed that the masses were incapable of governing. So, according to historian Albert Sabal, the Girondins, as representatives of the middle classes, were unable to accept the exceptional measures which the war had made necessary. These included economic measures like price controls, forced sales, compulsory acceptance of the revolutionaries' paper currency, and the requisitioning of goods. It also included political measures such as the Revolutionary Tribunal and the reorganisation of the government to create a stronger federal administration. Worse still, not only did they refuse to accept these measures, but these were the remedies for the disastrous war which they had started. Thus, Sabul is forceful in criticising the Girondins and their staunch defence of bourgeois interests. But this is also no surprise. Many Marxist historians sympathise with the Jacobin cause, and so hostility towards their primary antagonists is hardly groundbreaking. So what about other historians? What do more modern historians make of all these shenanigans? Historian Peter McPhee, writing in Our Own Times, takes a broader view of the revolution than the traditional Marxist historians of the 20th century. Considered a leading expert on Robespierre, he is nonetheless generally sympathetic to the Jacobins, and so again we can find a hostile analysis of Girondin actions in 1793. Interestingly, McPhee does not place anywhere near the same emphasis on economic matters as Sabul. Yes, he does acknowledge the tensions around property rights, but for McPhee, it's not the only game in town. Furthermore, McPhee is willing to be much more forthright in his criticisms of Brousseau and his allies. Holding nothing back, the scholar depicts the Girondins in no flattering terms. McPhee writes, The Girondins had been extraordinarily inept, for, as the military crises worsened dramatically, and as the Vendean rebellion swelled in size and menace, they sought scapegoats in the Parisian Saint-Culottes, and the capital itself, in terms of recalling the Duke of Brunswick. While Petion called on respectable men of means 
to drive these poisonous insects back into their dens. Robespierre regretted that the hard and merciless rich had prevented the people from reaping the fruits of their labours. The Girondins launched their campaign against Robespierre and Marat, against Parisian radicalism and anarchy, at the worst possible moment. At the very time their leaders decided that Paris was the problem, their close ally, General de Maurier, had deserted and the Vendée had rebelled. More so than Sabul, McPhee slams the Girondins as being inept, incompetent, and completely inadequate for the trials of governing the nation in a time of such great turmoil. McPhee ridicules the Girondins for stoking anger against Paris at a time when civil war and military coups were already jeopardizing the revolution's very existence. To McPhee, Paris was the solution, not the problem, and the Girondins' mistimed and mistargeted assaults just demonstrate their amateurness as both politicians and leaders. But McPhee tends to be quite sympathetic to Robespierre and his allies. Some would even describe aspects of his work as neo-Marxist, and so this isn't entirely unexpected. Nonetheless, this is a fascinating takedown of the Girondins by a respected and modern scholar. But in an effort to ensure that this doesn't become an episode reminiscent of a Mexican birthday party where the Girondins take the place of the piñata, what about a historian who does defend their actions? What about a respected scholar who has written immensely on the reign of terror and is far less sympathetic to Robespierre and the Jacobins than either McPhee or Sabul. Historian Robert Palmer, an American scholar writing in the mid-20th century, is perhaps best known for his amazing book, Twelve Who Ruled. The book, which focuses on the Committee of Public Safety, is fantastic and we'll be hearing more perspectives from Palmer in the future. So, does Palmer, one of the most influential American historians on the French Revolution, offer a compelling defence? Actually, no. In fact, I think he delivers one of the most concise and stinging rebukes of the Girondins that I've ever come across. When I first read it, I knew instantly that it would be making an appearance in the show. Palmer writes, The Girondins were reluctant to adopt emergency measures in an emergency which they themselves, in large part, brought about. They had been the most vociferous war party, yet they opposed the growth of wartime regulation. They had done much to make the constitutional government difficult before August 1792, yet now they demanded constitutional methods. They had been among the first to cry tyranny and make monarchy unworkable, yet they had evaded the responsibility for disposing of the king. They had used the violence of Paris while it served their purpose. Now they denounced it as dangerous radicalism. 
they had lauded the patriotism of their appointee, de Maurier. De Maurier was now with the Austrians. As I said, I don't think I've come across such a thorough and concise takedown of the Girondins. And unlike Sabul and McPhee, Palmer's personal sympathies don't necessarily incline him to such a complete renunciation of Brousseau and his peers. And yet, there's no denying that that was a complete renunciation. Thus, it is perhaps here that we get to the crux of it. Having done so much to radicalise the revolution, having made the Legislative Assembly dysfunctional, having made the Constitution of 1791 unworkable, having commenced the Revolutionary War, and having energised the Saint-Culottes of Paris, when the moment came for the Girondins to actually lead the radical revolution that they had done so much to create, they did not. They would not. They could not. They hesitated to overthrow the monarchy. They dithered on the execution of the king. They failed to embrace the necessities of wartime. And they seemed completely incapable of navigating the turbulent politics of revolutionary France. When their moment came, they failed. And that is why it is so easy to find historians from across the political spectrum who are ready to savage the Girondins. But I am willing to admit that the Girondins find themselves in a less than ideal position. The middle. Whether in historical debates or just the back seat of the family car, the middle can be a very uncomfortable place to be. To the right of the Girondins, historians with conservative and monarchist inclinations see a faction that blew up the crown only to be completely incapable of handling the consequences. Thus, these scholars are ready to unload on the men they blame for the demise of the monarchy and the bloody chaos that followed in its wake. Likewise, on the other flank are both Marxist and more left-leaning historians. These scholars see a group unable to meet the needs of the hour, an hour that they had done so much to bring about. The British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, once said that if you stand in the middle of the road, you simply get run over twice. The Girondins are a prime example of this. Whether from the left or the right, and in many cases the middle, historians from across the ideological spectrum can find no shortage of faults. Now, you can find historians who are not as critical of the Girondins and who provide a more balanced and measured approach to a group which, yes, had some major shortcomings. But if you'll indulge me, I would like to make the case myself. When I first studied the revolution, I found myself quite sympathetic to the Girondins. Flawed they most certainly were, but to me, here was a group of moderate Republicans who found themselves overwhelmed 
by militant radicalism and unrestrained populism. Their opponents accused them of treason, which they clearly had not committed, and they showed courage in the face of violent intimidation on a near daily basis. These men were legitimately elected deputies, representing the voices of their constituents, and they therefore were justified in their cries that Parisian radicals were trampling upon the national will, that the principles of national representation were being desecrated, and that the individual rights of the people they represented were being violated by their fellow citizens in the capital. The Girondins were not blameless in causing the events that overthrew them, and they clearly lacked political skills. But, all in all, I originally found them a sympathetic bunch. Moderate Democrats, overwhelmed by radicalism, populism, and their opponents' opportunism. However, while I may have held that view originally, in the creation of this podcast, I've become far less sympathetic to the Girondins. I still think some of their policies were fair and reasonable, but I have largely come to see them as the authors of their own demise. They did so much to create the chaos of 1793, the chaos that would ultimately consume them. For example, the Girondins had no small part to play in the creation of an environment defined by conspiracy and suspicion. Were they the sole authors? Absolutely not. The revolution was already obsessed with conspiracies long before Brousseau commanded the attention of the Legislative Assembly. But, according to historian Marisa Linton, it was the Girondins who initiated the practice of characterising their political rivals as conspirators. Furthermore, they initially came to power through the use of denunciations. Critically, these denunciations weren't based on any firm evidence, but rather on the basis of a mere moral conviction that the accused was guilty. Remember, it was the Girondins, then known as the Brissoans, who relentlessly pursued the then Foreign Minister de la Sarre and the supposed Austrian committee within the court. This pursuit succeeded in installing the so-called Brissoan Ministry of early 1792, but it also succeeded in getting the innocent de la Sarre slaughtered during the prison massacres of September that year. More importantly, the Girondins had used this same tactic, denunciations without evidence, on their fellow Jacobins. As Robespierre publicly resisted their ill-advised calls for a crusade for universal liberty, Brousseau and his allies had denounced Robespierre for treason and accused him of colluding with foreign powers. Thus, while I find Jacobin accusations of Girondin treachery frustrating and at times ludicrous, it's true to say that the Girondins started it. Brousseau and his allies had no problems pioneering the art of denouncing one's political opponents with baseless accusations. They just weren't ready for return fire. And to digress for a moment, this was of course a self-reinforcing spiral which hurled the revolution 
into the conspiracy abyss. The more one was accused of treason when they knew themselves to be innocent, the more it convinced them of their own conviction that their accuser was actually a treasonous villain. Yet, fostering the culture of conspiracy and denunciation which permeated the revolution is not the only way the Girondins pioneered their own demise. The Revolutionary War was foolish and unnecessary. Perhaps it's true to say that war with monarchical Europe was inevitable, but then it would have been a different conflict, with different characteristics and different consequences. The war we know, commencing in April 1792, that war is entirely of the Girondins' making. As such, they own the responsibility for it. Furthermore, they own the responsibility for being completely unwilling to make the measures necessary for pursuing the war effort. I understand that ideological principles prevented them from embracing concepts like price maximums and the forced sale of goods, and we'll see in the future the very tangible drawbacks of these policies. But what about smaller economic measures? Measures which may have partially appeased the demands of the Parisian sans-culottes. Requiring the acceptance of revolutionary paper currency and outlawing the practice of two prices, depending on whether one was purchasing with coins or paper, was surely a compromise that could have been made. Likewise, the refusal to reorganise the government, when the nation was so obviously on the precipice of disaster, was another inexcusable mistake. Mistakes which only mattered because the Girondins had led France to war. A war it was unprepared to fight. In short, while I was once sympathetic to the Girondins, nowadays I find myself more conflicted. I admire their courage, and I consider some of their policies to be not only just, but reasonable and appropriate for the times. I think Vernieu was accurate when he claimed that policies of moderation had at times saved France from further tumult and civil war. But equally, I find the Girondins lacking. These individuals may have made for great journalists. Some were even great intellectuals. But they made poor politicians. And like the poor king before them, events would consume those unfit for the times. In short, when I step back and observe the actions of the Girondins in early 1793, their policies, their actions, their decisions, I see aspects of the critiques we heard from Sabul, McPhee and Palmer. I see ineptitude. I see incompetence. I see men incapable of dealing with the consequences of their own actions. But I also see men of principles and men of courage. I see much to begrudge, but I also see much to admire. Before we move on and cover the fall of the Girondins, I would be negligent if I didn't provide at least one full-throttled defence of their actions. After all, 
It's not like all historians are Girondin haters, and the Gironde did enjoy support from many contemporaries at the time. In fact, future episodes will be dedicated to the Federalist revolts, which plunge France into widespread civil war. This only occurred because the Girondins could inspire others, and they did genuinely represent policies that at least some elements of society found to be not only worthwhile, but worth fighting for. To offer this defence, I turn to historian Alphonse Thiers. One of the pioneering historians of the French Revolution, Thiers would later become the first president of the Third Republic. Ironically, as president, Thiers would find himself playing a leading role suppressing neo-Jacobinism in the Paris Commune of 1871. Now to be clear, those events happened decades after he wrote this quote, but I do find it interesting that he himself would later battle Jacobinism in Paris, just like the Girondins he defends, praising the courage of the right side of the convention, i.e. the Girondins. Thiers writes, The 15th, 16th and 17th of May were stormy days, and every question gave rise to bitter discussion and furious conflicts in the assembly. The people of Bordeaux sent in an address, in which they declared their resolution of rising in the defence of their deputies, and intimated that one division was to march against the insurgents of La Vendée, and the other upon Paris to exterminate the anarchists who dared to threaten the national representation with violence. A letter from Marseille announced the continued opposition of the sections in the town, and a petition from Lyon demanded the aid of the assembly to release those who had been imprisoned as suspected persons and who were menaced with the revolutionary tribunal by Chalier and the Jacobins. The reading of those addresses excited a fearful tumult. Both the assembly and the galleries seemed on the point of proceeding to personal violence. Nevertheless, the right side, roused by the dangers which threatened them, communicated their courage to the plain, and it was resolved by a great majority that the petition of the inhabitants of Bordeaux was a noble display of patriotism. Every revolutionary tribunal established by local authorities, was abolished, and those citizens who might be forced thither were authorised to repel force by force. These resolutions, at the same time, aggravated the indignation of the mountain and exalted the courage of the right side. So, while one can find no shortage of criticisms of the Girondins, Thiers routinely praises the courage of the right side of the convention. Remember, the political terms left and right come from the French Revolution, and as the most conservative group within the chamber, the right was the home of the Girondins. Now, of course, from the perspective of pretty much any monarchist, the Girondins were the very definition of radical republicans. After all, many of these 
so-called moderates had championed universal male suffrage, made the constitutional monarchy unworkable, and vocally pushed for a French republic. To the monarchists, the Girondins were anything but moderate. But to their Jacobin opponents, the Girondins were more conservative, and thus they could be tarnished with accusations of moderation and royalism. But it's probably a good thing that the Girondins had courage, because over the next few days, they were going to need it. Grey History needs your support. For a small donation when new episodes are released, you can help secure more Grey History more often. With bonus episodes, episode extras, and an ad-free version of the show, there's plenty of great perks that come with joining the Grey History community. In breaking news, we've just launched a new community Discord, and the conversations are popping. So come join the party and do your part to keep Grey History going. Those patrons on the True Revolutionary tier already have early access to episode 60. So, for the price of just half a cup of coffee, help produce detailed history that isn't black and white, and help keep this podcast from succumbing to counter-revolution. Joining takes only a couple of minutes, and your support is immensely appreciated. Just follow the links in the show notes or on the website, and I look forward to welcoming you personally. With the country increasingly on the brink of widespread civil war, and the capital witnessing both attempted insurrections and seditious conspiracies, the clash of the factions finally came to a head. The downward spiral commenced on the 18th of May and the following two weeks would forever alter the course of world history. The Girondin deputy Gaudet took to the floor of the convention to deliver a lesson. A history lesson, to be precise. Referencing the well-known troubles of the English civil wars, Gaudet warned that France risked enduring the same miseries. In particular, he focused on an event known as Pride's Purge. The purge, which had occurred in 1648, had forcibly excluded from the English Parliament almost 200 MPs. The result was the so-called Rump Parliament, and its membership was less than half the number of the Long Parliament before it. Connecting the Jacobins to the English levellers, he denounced efforts for a similar purge which were directed against the Girondins. Going on the attack, he cautioned that these self-styled patriots were really an oppressive minority, one which intended to impose tyranny upon the entire nation. To prevent such an outrage, Godet called for additional security measures in the capital, with predictable results. Disorder broke out as Girondins and Jacobins condemned each other, and the commotion of the convention also consumed the public galleries, watching their deputies from above. But it was then that another Girondin, Isnar, rose to speak. At the time, Isnar was the president of the convention, a position 
which continually rotated amongst the deputies. In an alarming fashion, Isnar proceeded to outline a grand conspiracy. And, like all good French conspiracies, it involved the English. It always involves the English. According to Isnar, the conspiracy he had discovered was sanctioned by the British Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger. Its plan was simple. The enemies of the revolution were going to arm the capital and instigate a planned insurrection. In the resulting chaos, many deputies would be assassinated and the convention dissolved. Once the capital was in disorder, the nation would be invaded by the English, who would use their fleet to strike at multiple points along the French coast. Now, this sounds like one hell of a conspiracy. A historic revamp of Order 66 that would make for one great movie montage. But it isn't true. There was no English conspiracy. Yes, we will see the English fleet make an appearance shortly. But no, it was never going to be part of some elaborate plot masterminded in London to decapitate the French government through a staged insurrection. However, that did not matter. In an environment characterised by suspicion and mistrust, in an atmosphere defined by fear and anxiety, forceful accusations were often enough to carry weight. Furthermore, while Isnar was wrong about a conspiracy led by England, he was right about one thing. Conspiracy against the convention was alive and well. It may not have been the English, but plans for an insurrection against the national government were indeed underway. In fact, they had been afoot for months, but recently they had gone into overdrive. To back up a bit, you may remember that back in early March, there had been an attempted insurrection against the convention. Organised by the most radical elements of the city, the central aim of this plot was to detain leading Girondins and purge the convention of their treasonous presence. Ultimately, this rebellion failed, in no small part because neither the Paris Commune nor the Jacobin Club had sanctioned the effort. But this was no longer the case. In previous episodes, we've seen how prominent Jacobins adopted Saint-Culotte demands for the recall and replacement of the Girondin deputies. By mid-May, they were joined by the Jacobin-dominated Paris Commune as well. Critically, this support was more than just words. In the lead-up to the overthrow of the monarchy, a central committee had been established to coordinate the sections of Paris. Officially, this body was busy organising the capital's defence against the advancing Prussians, but unofficially, it was plotting the insurrection of 10 August. Here, in May 1793, we get a sense of déjà vu. As a separate, very innocent, very non-insurrectionary committee was reorganised in mid-May. Created with the blessings of the municipal government, 
This revamped committee had the name of the Avishi Assembly, deriving its name from its meetings in the former palace of the Archbishop of Paris. Comprised of representatives of the city's sections, this assembly was officially busying itself with the matters relating to the nation's defence. In reality, it was plotting the purge of the Girondins. Understandably, as word got out of this not very suspicious assembly, the news was unsettling, to say the least. Critically, it wasn't just the Girondins who were alarmed by the assembly, but also many members of the plain. For months, the unaligned deputies of the convention had been dismayed by the developments unfolding in the capital. Many were disgusted by the so-called soap and sugar riots of February, and they regarded the emerging enraged movement with a mixture of dread and revulsion. But perhaps most importantly, the Paris municipality was often viewed with suspicion and contempt. The commune had routinely attempted to exert undue influence upon the national government through petitions, demonstrations and just plain illegal decrees it had consistently overstepped its authority and impeded the work of the convention to leading members of the plain this was unacceptable after all the convention was to represent the nation's will not the will of paris like the girondins the independent deputies had no interest in being dictated to by the whims of the capital's town hall, nor, for that matter, the revolutionary organisations it was collaborating with. Thus, when rumours started to fly about the new Avishi Assembly's true purpose, it wasn't just the Girondins who were unnerved. So too were the plain. Furthermore, it wasn't just the risk of insurrection which worried them nor the implications of a purge for the principles of national representation. There was a very personal element to their angst as well. You see, it was widely known that the commune was stacked with Jacobin sympathisers, even enraged sympathisers, and the commune made it clear it was eager to rid the convention of so-called counter-revolutionary deputies. But the definition of counter-revolutionary was quite broad and seemingly ever-increasing. Murat and other radicals had been demanding the recall of all deputies who had voted to spare the life of King Louis XVI, and many militant sans-culottes had suggested that all who had failed to vote for the king's death had in fact committed treason. Taken to their logical conclusion, these statements would not just condemn the Girondins to death, but in fact, just shy of a majority of the convention's representatives. Remember, all deputies had now lost their parliamentary immunity, and many members of the plain had also voted for some sort of reprieve on the matter of the king's punishment. Consequently, any insurrectionary plot threatened not only the Girondin deputies, but potentially any deputy who incurred the wrath of Paris. In fact, in the episode extra for this episode, we'll examine claims that some insurrectionists 
wanted to eliminate not only the Girondins, but all the deputies of the plain. If you're a member of the Grey History community, do make sure you check it out. And if you're not, I really need your support, and I guarantee you'll love the extra content and the extra context that comes alongside every regular episode, not to mention the ad-free feed and other exclusive perks. Anyway, I digress. Thus, after Isnar's denunciation of insurrectionary conspiracy, the Girondins used the unnerving presence of the Avishi Assembly to go on the attack, using the commotion that had just consumed the galleries after Gordet's speech, commotion that seemed to be tied to the prominent Jacobin deputy, Marat, the Girondins denounced plans to have leading representatives murdered in a new September massacres. According to them, the unrest in the public galleries was just one component of what we would call a false flag operation. In other words, it was staged and part of an elaborate plot to instigate disorder in the capital. Disorder which would be used as a cover to strike against the convention. With these accusations made, chaos ensued. The convention became increasingly ungovernable as both sides denounced the other for crimes and counter-revolutionary plots. Amidst the commotion, Godet recommenced his warnings of purges and tyranny, despite being constantly interrupted by cries and shouts. Critically, the Girondin deputy proposed two radical ideas. Firstly, he described the Paris Commune as anarchical and proclaimed it to be the great source of every evil threatening the convention. As such, he proposed the abolition of the Jacobin-dominated municipal government. As you can imagine, this measure was the very definition of inflammatory. But he then went further. Having proposed the dissolution of the capital's commune, he then went on to propose the dissolution of the convention itself. Godet proclaimed that the convention was not free, implying that the nation's representatives were menaced by popular violence and robbed of their individual liberties to speak and vote as they wished. His solution was a new convention which was to be assembled elsewhere. Far from the menacing hordes of the capital, this new body could govern the nation effectively, uncorrupted by the anarchy of Paris. Unsurprisingly, this was like a red flag to a bull. For the Jacobins, the Girondin plot had finally been revealed. Having warned for months of the schemes of Brousseau and his allies, here, at last, their enemies were unmasked. By calling for a new convention and the dismantlement of the Paris Commune, the anti-revolutionary intrigues of the Girondins were now as clear as day. Commotion once more consumed the convention. But the disorder did not last. Speaking on behalf of the Committee of Public Safety, Barrere took to the floor, 
Although increasingly associated with the Jacobins, Barrere remained one of the most prominent and influential leaders of the plain. It had been his intervention which had done so much to cripple the Girondins' proposed appeal to the people in January. And it was his intervention now which would derail their plans again. Barrere ridiculed the idea that a new convention could be assembled, let alone in the Girondin heartland, as Gaudet had cheekily suggested when he specified a commune near Bordeaux. Barrere stated plainly that if he wanted anarchy, he would support Gaudet's proposal, and claimed instead that it was impossible to supplant the convention with a replacement. Yet, Barrere had dim views regarding the Paris Commune. He had previously argued it was exceeding its authority. And here, he took the opportunity to agree with the Girondins that the municipality had been exaggerating or commuting laws as it pleased. He also agreed, as did many members of the Plain, that the sections of Paris had also been infringing upon the sovereignty of the whole nation. Yet Barrere was far from being done. Most importantly, Barrere agreed that a conspiracy was underway, dramatically revealing that he too had heard details of a plot against the convention. Barrere was prepared to examine not only this new Avicii assembly, but the Paris Commune more broadly. To Barrere, it was clear that the Girondins' claims of a seditious conspiracy were not unfounded. Faced with what was clearly a real and present danger, he implored the convention to act. And by that, I mean he implored the convention to create a committee. Because this is government, and you can't do anything without creating a committee first. Watering down the drastic proposals of the Girondins, Barrere's suggested solution carried the day. Instead of abolishing the municipal government, the new committee, dubbed the Commission of Twelve, would investigate the actions of the Paris Commune. Importantly, this committee was dominated by Girondins, who enthusiastically went to work, rooting out the conspiracy they believed was an imminent threat to their own lives. It didn't take long until they found the droids they were looking for. Within days of the body's creation, the Commission of Twelve heard testimony from individuals who had attended a range of seditious meetings being held in the capital. According to these witnesses, no concrete agreement had been reached amongst the collaborators, but the ideas discussed were shocking. In addition to the arrest of a list of suspected deputies, multiple individuals at multiple meetings had called for the prompt execution of the detained. Deeming their guilt beyond doubt, it was suggested that the Girondin deputies be Septemberized. In other words, that they be brutally and quickly murdered in extrajudicial killings. According to disputed witness testimony, Discussions even ventured into how they were to be killed and what was to be done with the bodies. My personal favourite suggestion 
is that the conspirators just bury the murdered Girondins under some floorboards and then forge a note claiming that the missing deputies had emigrated across the frontier. A 100% believable claim. I'm sure no one would ever have doubted it. Now, the evidence obtained by the Commission of Twelve is hotly contested. Historian Morris Slavin, for example, describes some of these testimonies as wildly exaggerated. But, whatever the truth may be, it was clear that multiple bodies in the city were actively planning an insurrection. Furthermore, some of the more hot-headed participants were calling for the elimination of the Girondin deputies. Critically, these meetings were being conducted with leading commune officials present. With the Jacobins and their like-minded allies planning an imminent rebellion, an interesting twist occurred. Wanting no part of the developing uprising, some conservative sections of Paris broke ranks. At least three sections publicly denounced the plotting of their fellow districts, and some even implicated the mayor as being actively involved. With the evidence mounting, the Commission of Twelve decided to act. Less than a week after its creation, the Commission arrested several leading members of the Paris Commune and demanded testimony and records from others. The detained included a commune official named Jacques Hébert, one of the city's leading radical journalists, perhaps second only to Marat. So, in addition to the threats against the plane, we'll also be unpacking Hébert's controversial journalism in the episode extra for this episode. However, Hébert was not the only revolutionary arrested by the commune. Jean Vallée, one of the most prominent spokespeople of the enraged, was also detained, as was a man named Dobson, the president of one of the city's sections. In short, the revolutionary cohorts of Paris, be they in the commune, in the sections, or in the grassroots movements, were under attack. To them, this was an outrage. It was proof of counter-revolutionary conspiracy. In less than a week, the Girondins had called for the abolishment of the Commune, demanded the creation of a new convention, and now arrested several leading figures of the radical left. This was of course just after they had impeached Marat and resisted much-needed economic and political reforms. The arrest of these officials was the final straw. This provocation, this treason, could not go unanswered. Something had to be done. Something must be done. Prompted into action by the Commission of Twelve, the long-awaited insurrection would finally come into being. With their moves against their enemies in Paris, the Girondins had triggered a series of events which would culminate in their downfall. The days of the Girondins were numbered. The purge of the Girondins had begun. Thank you for listening to episode 59, The Purge of the Girondins, part 1. 
In the next episode, we'll witness the insurrection of 31 May, an event dripping in controversy and one which I assure you will be diving into the details. The episode extra for this episode focuses on a bear's actions which placed him in the crosshairs of the Commission of Twelve. It also examines the claims of some historians that radical revolutionaries intended to target not just the Girondins, but the independent deputies of the plane as well. As always, a huge thank you to those sponsoring the show, as it's only the generous support of the community that keeps Grey History on the air. If you're enjoying Grey History, if you'd like to continue to enjoy Grey History, then I need your help to keep it going. For as little as $2 an episode, for as little as half a cup of coffee, you can help promote history that isn't black and white and get a whole bunch of exclusive perks and episodes in the process. For the true revolutionaries donating $5 per episode or a full cup of coffee, you already have early access to episode 60, The Purge of the Girondins Part 2. Another warm welcome to the newest patrons of the show and a special call out again to the amazingly generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, Olga, Kevin and Noel. Thank you for listening, stay safe and have a great day. This podcast is part of the Airway Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows, like the History of Egypt podcast and Pax Britannica. I interrupt this regular programming to bring you some alarming news. There's been some counter-revolutionary activity. I suppose it's a mark of the show's growing popularity, but unfortunately some reactionary fun sponges have recently left Grey History's first one- and two-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Usually, I would ignore such unenlightened behaviour and consider it an inevitable achievement of all noteworthy podcasts. But, besides complaining about my shitty jokes and apparently lack of detail, yes, you heard right, these reviews are quite literally impacting the discoverability of the show for new listeners. That, of course, is jeopardising this experiment in full-time production, which I think we can all agree we don't want to jeopardise. So, if you listen to Apple Podcasts in particular and you haven't already done so, if you could please leave a written review, that would be absolutely amazing. Just go to Grey History in the app and scroll down to the review section and help me expunge this counter-revolutionary plot. Thank you again for all your help, and now back to the show.